Welcome to another episode of the Emulsion Podcast, a show for chefs who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and I'd love to continue the conversation with you from this episode on my online circle community. There you can share your two cents and learn about supporting the show on justinkana.com slash support. For your convenience, it's also linked up in the description of your podcast player. Let's get into the show. What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Emulsion Podcast. My guests today, yes, I said guests with an additional S, are Andres Husa and Caitlin Orr. They are both taste hunters for the world's 50 best list and food and travel bloggers in their own right. And they also host food tours in the, you know, non-pandemic times. I personally met Anders back when he was at a guest chef collaboration dinner in Norway that I was fortunate enough to cook for back when I was working at Lisverke. It was in Oslo in 2015, believe it or not, years and years ago. And Caitlin is an American writer, photographer, all-around food lover and sharer who has since made the move overseas. And they both live in Copenhagen now, creating all kinds of content around their travels, their eatings. And they also host a community on Patreon, if any of this sounds fun to you. And you should check that out. It's called The Hungries is the name of their community. If you enjoy this interview, I also recommend you queue up my conversation with Max Shapiro, where him and I also dig into a lot of, you know, kind of experiences from these fantastic restaurants all around the world. If at any point you would like to pause this interview and check out Caitlin or Anders online or any of these specific linkable things that we discuss, please do check out the show notes in the description or online at justincona.com slash media. Thanks so much for being with me. Let's get into the show. I thought I thought a fun place to start might be the correction that you provided me, Anders, which was the kind of like delineation between being able to contribute to the world's 50 best list and then what you shared that you guys do, which is the taste hunter positions. And yes. so can you tell people a little bit about that position and like maybe how you guys came into that and um, the function that it serves towards the greater project that is the San Pellegrino list? So the idea with the with the Taste Hunter program is for the 50 best organization to have kind of like, I don't know, scouts uh, around the world uh, that Meet are... on the ground in yeah. uh, countries all over the world, like so, locals. Exactly. So they try to have a representative being a Taste Hunter in all the major parts of the world. I know they're struggling to fill the position, uh, position somewhere, but uh, uh, yeah, so... Caitlin There's start- like one per region and you wouldn't, you wouldn't normally have more than one per region. Like now, okay, now there's two of us in Scandinavia, but that's because, because of this. So You're yeah, both I, based there. Yeah. Yeah. I started, um, being the West coast of the U S, uh, taste hunter. So, you know, just mo- that was when I was living in Los Angeles and mostly sharing from L.A. and San Francisco restaurants. And of course, whenever you're traveling, you're also sharing from wherever you're 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 eating. And taste centers are people who tend to travel to eat. But yeah, what were you going to say? Something? Well, just that Caitlin was the first taste center among the two of us. And she was a taste center based in the U.S. when I met her. But uh, then we started traveling together and it just became natural uh, for uh, me to join the program as well after a while. And I was based in Scandinavia and they were actually looking for someone to, to fill that uh, region. Uh, but yeah, now we made it difficult for them with Caitlin moving here. So now we're missing someone on the West Normally Coast. Normally we would be in the in the U.S. a lot more, but this year has been difficult. Yeah, so. actually in uh, last, or not last year, but the year before last year, uh, everything was working out fine. We were splitting our time between the U.S. and here, but uh, yeah, we have not been able to do that. Because Caitlin, yeah, your family is still in L.A., right? 
My family is in LA and uh, yeah, we uh, we were hoping to be there for the winter, winter months and uh, get some sunshine, but it will be the first place we go once uh, this is over. That was what the a, grand. Well, what a, what a feeling when Scandinavia comes out of winter, right? Like you guys are, I mean, Seattle's, well, believe it or not, Seattle is a sister city of Bergen, Anders. I don't know if you knew that, but that's yeah, part of what, yeah. It's part of what influenced my move here. And we're going through the, I mean, the sun is shining brilliantly right now, which is, you know, I, I loved Bergen, so I love the rain. And so they're, they're, it, it's not actually like this thing where I go into seasonal depression, but it is pretty cool when Scandinavia comes out of the winter. It feels like uh, life is returning. It's like I almost have forgotten that I've been virtually hibernating for months. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what sun feels like. It's you know, I lived in Bergen for four years, and I think I got a, uh, a sense of that the depression of living in Bergen. Because, but it's also related to the fact that I was a poor student back then, and I was living kind of outside the city, and everything was just, you know, crap. Sure. So I needed I needed to do something different. I didn't, that, like, when I go back to Bergen now, it's a beautiful city. Exactly. I mean, I, I so I lived in Chicago. I was on the opening team of Grace, Curtis Duffy's place. And I was, I think... Uh, 19 when I moved there, 19 or 20. So I couldn't drink alcohol yet. And I had no friends. And I lived within like six blocks of the restaurant so that I could walk to work. I didn't have a car. And I moved there in October. So it was like, as the restaurant opened, we went into winter in Chicago. And I kept telling myself, I have seasonal depression. I have seasonal depression. I'm like so miserable at this, at this thing. And then I moved to Bergen, where it was like 200 days of rain a year, super dark in the winter times. But I had friends i loved working at the restaurant and i just like would go out all the time and go on hikes and do all this stuff and i was like oh it's not this depression part like it's not the seasons i was making me sad it's like the stuff to do and like how i spend my time i was making me sad it was very like huge learning experience back back to world's 50 best when you guys make these decisions or kind of like see something bubbling up or you hear about something where does that information go does it go to san pellegrino the organization does it do you guys email individual people who are make, you know like going to these meals and actually voting um like get into the practicalities of, of of that role or kind of like how you guys view that position it's not fully as organized as that there's really no, <laughs> no there's really no system we're basically just doing our thing we're we're you know exploring our region and uh, finding uh, amazing restaurants and places to eat here and and you know, doing our thing, but then a couple of times a year, uh, either the 50 best organization will ask us, or we we can also chip in ideas for these takeovers where, where Instagram we Instagram takeovers. Yeah, so we contribute photos and videos and some text for them to post on their channels. So, like this summer, we were highlighting what some of the restaurants here were doing in response to the pandemic. You know, the Noma Burger, all these kinds of things. Like, we're here. We want to showcase what our region is doing. And in, in normal times, in non-pandemic times, you know, as, as taste centers, this is something uh, we're, we're not hiding. So, of course, there's probably voters, 50 best voters following us and seeing, oh, where are they going to eat even when we're not doing takeovers on 50 best's account. But the voters are always anonymous, so we have no idea who they are. They could be taking some of our recommendations just like anyone else, but we don't know who they are. They change every year, the voters, and that's about, you know, it's we're pretty much just ambassadors more for our region's restaurants than we are for the 50 best brands. What do 
people get wrong about World's 50 Best? Because from the way that you're describing it, it's like if if we all kind of like put our heads together and decided that this was going to be how we're going to structure this kind of like global, not ne we don't necessarily have to call it ranking, but kind of like opinionated um, discussion of how restaurants stack up against each other and who's kind of like performing at a really high level. I think we would come up with something pretty similar to kind of like what you're describing, where it's like there's people who are kind of like the vanguards are on the they're on the front lines. They kind of like hop around. They're locally based. They, you know, have connections in the community. But then there's this other side of it where people like completely bash World's 50 Best from both sides. Right. So like Momofuku Noodle Bar shouldn't be as high as it is. But then at the same time, you're not highlighting enough smaller restaurants and casual places. So it's like feels like you can't win at a certain point with these with these uh lists and stuff like that so what do people get wrong i guess about world's 50 best knowing that you guys like not just work with them but like you, you you're in it you know what i mean like you 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 get the the ins and outs of of the whole ranking systems in that i think first and foremost people just take it a little bit too seriously like they think that oh this is the this is the answer this is the list that, These know. are the only restaurants I should ever eat at. No, it's like, you know, we view it as like a starting point for our trips when we're planning. And also like, it's not so much for us, at least maybe for the restaurants, it matters more. I'm, I'm not sure. But for us, it's it's less about the ranking on the list. But if you're on this list, then you're an amazing restaurant. Who cares if you're number 47 or if you're number five? I mean, I don't think there's a huge difference there. It's like you're already at this amazing level and they're spread out all over the world. And okay, if I'm in Chile, I'm going to go there because it sounds amazing because I've heard about it. And I think, yeah, I think it's less about, about the ranking for us. And it, it changes every year because the voters change every year. And why are some of the same restaurants on it repeatedly? It's because with anything that becomes popular, Noma, you hear about it over and over and people want to keep going and they, everybody's going and you have a great experience and it just, it's a snowball, right? So I think it's hard to make it onto the list if you're a new restaurant because you have to get people in your doors. You have to have diners. You have to have the voters there to vote for you. Um, but then once you're on it, if you keep it up, I think you can stay on it for quite a long time. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of the critique that 50 Best has uh, got over the years, they are now addressing as well. Like these restaurants that are, have never been on the list, they're now making different categories for them. You have the 50 Best Discoveries, and now you have the uh, Essence of Asia list for the street food. So, you know, I can, I can only imagine, I mean, we're not involved with the management there in any way or form, but I can only imagine them like seeing, getting a lot of criticism. Yeah. I mean, they're... they're they have the praise, you know, they're respected, they have a lot of followers, they have a lot of people who care about them, but they, they also definitely get a lot of criticism. And I can only imagine them trying to like navigate through that. And, yeah. you know, they they have to decide, are we going to be the, uh, are we going to be the new Michelin guide uh, covering everything, uh, which the Michelin guide doesn't really do, but they, you know, cover more than just a hundred restaurants in the world. But, uh, or are we going to be, uh, what well, we are the 50 best list. And I think it's uh, I think it's kind of nice that they're not like Michelin in the sense that you don't have to they don't have to have a guide for a city to have a restaurant on the list there. You know, they can they can touch places that are more outside of your capital cities and your popular destinations. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That's probably where it 
where they kind of found their market is that they could talk about restaurants all over the world, regardless of whether they had a guide covering that region. There's an interesting joke that goes around in relation to, you know, like I grew up with a cable TV in, in, in my, in my house. And, you know, when everything kind of moved to Netflix and now you have Hulu and now you have Disney plus, there's this joke that went around that was like, oh, well, everybody got away from cable, but now there's all these streaming companies. And what if we just bundled all of these streaming companies together? And it's just kind of like it goes back the other way. And I think the very same thing would happen if to all these people that say something to the effect of like, we should just burn 50 best down. We should start over. We should build something new. Like at a certain point, I have a feeling it would get back to something that looks very similar to what World's 50 Best is doing. And so it's always like I, I try to caution people uh, against that. But something that I that I have been thinking through um, as someone who speaks to people who are either going for these accolades or, you know, like I've worked at places that that get these, you know, awards and recognition. Is there and I'm, I'm I'm curious to kick the ball around with this idea with you guys from the sense of is there a world where. We can just be real and say that there's like an objective look at restaurants and a subjective look at restaurants. So objective, what I'm saying in that context, is like when you look at a restaurant on Google Maps and you have what shows up on my phone, at least here in Seattle, is like these tick boxes of like offers takeout, has parking, uh, ADA compliant, uh, you know, more information that is objective to that place, like has 65 seats. Um you know, like past data of like, uh, is usually busy right now, you know, like these very objective things about a restaurant and COVID showed us that like these, this information is helpful because you need to know if a restaurant is offering dine in right now, or if they have, you know, so that's provides a lot of utility. And then on the subjective side of things, like we actually call it what it is. Like it's people's opinions on their experiences at these places. And you actually empower people to like positively incentivize them in a way that I don't think a platform like Yelp or TripAdvisor does. Like they end up pooling all the gravity around people's bad experiences versus this other thing that's like Foursquare has kind of tried it. And, you know, Google obviously has like their reviews and all that sorts of stuff. But we actually like lean into the subjective part of like when I went there and that's what I try to like put my going out to eat videos about is like when I went to go here, here's what my experience was. And so you hopefully that cohesive blend of like you have the objective parts about the restaurant and then a bunch of stories of people's experiences good and bad that would like quell quelm a lot of this stuff like am i am i am i on to something or is that like something that you guys think about or am i am i missing something there if you're talking about like I mean, like, you know, you're talking about the videos you make and, you know, of course we use Google Maps as well when it comes to like the nitty gritty of trip planning. But I think like, I mean, when we get down to deciding where to go eat and I, I don't know, I can't speak for everyone and how they decide to go eat somewhere, but like, I think it has to come, of course, I think the subjective part, the opinions come into play, but it has to come from someone you trust, whether that's a guide of some kind or whether it's a friend who you really trust and have the same taste as, but you know, if you're going to trust someone's opinion, then you have to, you have to trust their opinions generally to be able to take their opinion, like at least and, and go to a specific restaurant. That's, that's how I see it. But subjective experiences always win though, right? You, if you have one bad experience, you, you, you feel like, 
overlooked or neglected as a guest one time and you might never return. It's funny because we've had some bad experiences with, with places and then for some reason decided to go back anyway. I mean, of course, we try to give people a, a second chance, but if you have a really bad experience, why would you really go back? But then we've gone back and discovered that it's actually a great place. We just had a re- we, we just hit them on a really yeah. bad night. Uh, yeah, it can, can happen to anyone. Can you talk a little bit about like you you and I like the the the, the three of us can articulate what makes a bad experience at a restaurant? But I think for people who are either just starting off cooking or you know like I, I tell the story of we had a sous chef at at Lise for Kit that. Um, he he was like a, a sous chef at La Serre in Paris, and he came to work uh, at the restaurant in, in Bergen. And it was maybe like three years into being a sous chef in Bergen, he was like, "I'm going to go back to Paris, and I'm going to have my first Michelin meal." And I was like, "Dude, you you grew up in France, and you worked in Paris for something crazy like eight years, and you've never gone and ate at a Michelin star restaurant before." And so it's like, there's a lot of people who come into the industry and they start cooking, but they haven't actually been on the guest side of things. So when you're talking about bad experiences and you don't have to call anybody out, um, but I guess what makes a bad experience or what, 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 what would completely um, turn something sour for you guys? I think most of the restaurants that we go to, like we have tried to research enough like about the food that we are pretty sure that the food is going to be pretty good. And that, of course you can have misses there as well. But I think something that really stands out to me that is maybe, maybe more easily fixed is just hospitality. And there are, it's just such an important part of dining out um, because that, that is what will keep you coming back to a restaurant is the host and how they make you feel. And like that, that is what I'm craving right now during lockdown is I miss the people behind these restaurants. Like, of course I miss the dishes, but you can kind of try to recreate some of the dishes at home or you can still have good food, but it's the the people, it's like the soul of the place. And so if you're not getting that somewhere, if you have someone with a snotty attitude and that's just like, why, you know, why would you go somewhere if that just makes you feel bad? Um, Luckily, I feel like that is rare because at least at these pretty high level restaurants or restaurants that care about their food also care about their service. They usually go hand in hand. It's like more uh, 50% or more than 50, right? Like how you yeah. treat the guest is like just exactly. as, yeah. It, yeah. It, and again, it, like for me, like it's less about the ambiance and it's less about the vibe. Like that is part of it. But like it, I could be eating like on the street, on the side of a street. If like someone is nice and the food is good, like I will come back and sit on the street again. Yeah. Just being just being greeted by someone with a smile and have an interaction with someone uh, makes all the difference, you know. Just sitting around, I mean, you, you can you can have a restaurant that's busy and you have to wait wait a, a long time for the food, but the host can make up for that if they just you know interact with you and make you feel welcome. Yeah, and like menus, you know, menus can change. So even if you love a restaurant, if you go back and okay, you know, this dish was better than another dish. Like that's, you know, menus are going up and down, changing with the season, changing with time. But uh, I think the, the thing that would make me really like have a bad experience would probably be something more personal than that. Or the food would have to be really bad to, like, really bad to get me to not go back. Well, I'm also hearing you guys say that there's this, you know, common, you know, like pulling back the curtain from from restaurant life a little bit. Like there can be moments where, 
So like, for example, I had a meal uh, last month at a, at a three Michelin star restaurant where the front of house team came out and put out cutlery for a specific dish. Like I knew exactly what dish was coming, but it was very, uh, there was a mistake the, we were not getting that dish. And so the front of house person had to come back and like remove that cutlery. There was a amazingly eloquent way of like making jokes at the table when they removed that cutlery. And it's like, I had worked at this restaurant, so I knew exactly what dish was coming. And so it's like, I had a little bit of what I'm trying to get at is a lot of times restaurant people, chefs that go out into the dining room specifically feel like when something goes wrong, it's like you, you should be a turtle and go in your shell and just like not talk about it. But I think what you guys are saying, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is it's almost like lean into it and almost kind of like talk to the guests about it uh, from the sense, like, don't try to hide it because we know, you know, like we know something's going wrong. Or it's like if you if we're waiting for 20 minutes on a dish, you know, like there's there's ways there's more hospitality focused solutions to these problems versus thinking that like silence is the answer. Be curious yeah. to hear your thoughts there. I totally agree. I mean, uh, this uh, this way of uh, being afraid of doing small errors like that is it's, it belongs to the past, in my opinion. It's it's like the formal restaurant where you can't do a single little mistake. You like the, the whole myth about uh, how the Michelin inspectors are waiting for uh, dropped fork. a dropped fork, exactly, or dropping the fork to see how quickly someone picks it up, or waiting to see if if the hospitality staff um, makes a mistake it belongs to the past no it's uh I, I, we've been in the exact same situation as you i like can picture cutlery coming down and i can picture the waiter coming out and laughing and being like oops that one's not coming yet and taking this away it'll, it'll come back you'll see the spark <laughs> again and it's like oh cool no worries like whatever yeah totally and also just, you know, okay, this is a three Michelin star restaurant you're talking about, so you can kind of understand why they're doing it this way. But I, you see even in the Michelin world and in the 50 best world that restaurants will go more and more away from this very formal thing with cutlery. They might just have the cutlery on the table for you uh, to, to even like, you even avoid those kind of issues. It matters so little. Like that's never what makes or breaks a yeah. meal for us. Yeah. Who cares, you know? Who cares about the spoon? Let's talk about when you guys are going to a city that you haven't been and you can switch city with, you know, country or, you know, air neighborhood. When you're thinking about strategizing there and in, you know, doing my homework on you too, I, I, I heard you guys talk about FOMO in this process. So kind of like, how do you, how do you strategize around doing a new city? Well, first of all, the FOMO is something we are learning to try to let go of because you're never going to get to go to every restaurant you want to visit in one trip unless you stay there for like months at a time. It's just like your your list just keeps growing. You know, you stay there and you meet locals and you just keep adding spots to your trip. We, so, do, we do fantasize about going like a month to Paris yeah. and like, you know, apartment swapping with someone just so we can stay there for a long time Yeah, <laughs> because you want to have you want to have enough time. But most of the time we're going to a place for a week or less mm -hmm. and we have to figure out a way to prioritize our time around that. Right. So then, you know, I think the research starts a lot longer back than the trip planning. It starts with just following people on Instagram, you know, from chefs to food writers, to other food bloggers, to 
people who love to eat out and uh, it's just, it's constantly saving restaurants to little folders or on Google maps or something like you probably do the same. You have a long list of places. Like once you book that flight, you already have 50 restaurants you want to go to. Okay. And then it's narrowing it down and it's saying, okay, maybe let's pick two fine dining meals. Maybe um, we like to have a spread. We don't want to be eating tasting menus every day. We want to have the casual spots and we want to have the bakeries. We want to have the coffee shops, the wine bars, and maybe a couple more fine dining meals. So, okay, which fine dining meals are we going to prioritize? Can we get reservations, book those first, lock them in, then fill in the gaps with the other stuff. And then also leaving time. We, we've learned to leave a couple days just completely unplanned because what if something goes wrong or, you know, you have to move something and also like, you know, best case scenario, nothing goes wrong. And then you have a day to go to a local recommendation that you got from your son at a restaurant who said, you have to go to this new place around the corner. You can't miss it. It's the best place in town right now. You have to go. Then you have a time slot for that. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's usually how we, we plan a trip. And, and about the FOMO, like we've, we've, we've had FOMO many times, you know, we want to make sure we, we, we get to this restaurant. We've been dreaming about going to that restaurant, but We've just learned that we shouldn't try to fit everything in if we can. We never do back-to-back tasting menus, for example. We've done it a couple of times, painful. and it's just painful. And it's not fair to the restaurant. It's not fair to yourself. You want to be hungry for every meal, and you want to be, be able to fully appreciate it and just come into it with an open mind. It's like, I don't know. I, I wouldn't see two back-to-back, like, operas i wouldn't see two back-to-back broadway shows and for me it's like the same thing you don't want to exhaust yourself yeah i'd argue it's worse than that right because the chefs that are doing these tasting menus design the experience to i mean arguably overstimulate all five of your senses mm-hmm. and to have that happen like it seems so silly to call it exhausting because it's like you're being you're being pampered if, if effectively. Yeah. And so to yeah. call being pampered exhausting is is a little it feels like an oxymoron. Yeah. But it, it truly is. Like the the point of these meals is to like completely give you the you know, like peak experience. Like chefs research psychological stimulating things to do with like colors and over acidified foods and like everything is salted like crazy. Um and so I don't know, like do you and and so people people often misconstrue that with like oh well it, it's so easy to just sit there and eat like what what are you doing but it's like it's not it's it's something completely different I'm I'm glad you brought up like stage performances Caitlin because that's like the same <laughs> principles apply there it's like culinary art and I think that's also something that I really try to explain to people when they're comparing the price you know the price of a, a meal the price of a meal and uh, that's something that I'm like well you know would you pay how much would you pay to go see a Broadway show? This is like, it's that level of maybe this is a once in a lifetime meal or a once in a lifetime experience. And I think you need to look at it from that lens instead of just like, if you just want a meal, yeah, sure. Go grab a taco off the street. And, and you should do that too, but it, they're different things. It's so funny because the, the number one comment we get on our YouTube videos is always like, there's too little food. Where's the food? I don't see like, do they only serve air and flowers here? And it's like I just, small I just wish I could pick these people up and put them and experience it right there and then, and they just realize how much food you get at these restaurants. Even though each individual serving looks small, at the end of the meal, you're so full, 
and you've had like so much to eat and drink for so many hours that you are exhausted in many the, ways. The benefit I have of the chef audience that I have is it, it's almost like a built-in moderation thing for my comment section because I have people that, especially on the ones that like go viral, like I had the, my, my one in Austria, Francescana, like got quite a bit of traction and same comments come through when you like reach that, you know, audience group that's just like going around trying to troll uh, restaurant videos on the internet. And, you know, I have chefs that chime in that say like, it's actually quite a bit of food. Like this is actually like a, a, a hugely expansive tasting menu. Um, but it's just, it, it, it is kind of comical to see those comments of like, I could have gone to McDonald's and gotten X number of burgers for what you paid. Cause I post my uh, checks at the end of my videos as well. Um, and so it's just funny. And I, I, I kind of opened the door from that sense, like showing people what I paid. Um, but anyways, the, the interesting piece that, that you, you guys have done in the past, and I don't know if this is something that's going to come back um, when COVID's over, is taking those skills, because it's truly a skill. Like, you and I can talk about um, planning a trip in this way, but as someone who's never done it before, it's just like, how do I even approach this? And you guys have, you know, strategically, call it solved, but doing these, like, curated experiences, the food tours, because it's effectively getting all of that knowledge and all of the kind of, like, boots-on-the-ground sense of a city and turning it into an experience where it's like you actually get the itinerary. And, and correct me if I'm saying any of this wrong, but can you talk a little bit about the curating experience? Cause I, th I thought it was so smart what you like doing, doing something like that. Yeah, no. So we've, we've done a little bit of uh, food tours. Uh, it started out before, for me, it started out before I met Caitlin. I did a, a big food tour uh, here in Copenhagen, but I wasn't living here back then. I was living in Oslo. Uh, so I just picked uh, a, a time slot or a, a time period and, and planned out uh, like a dream uh, long weekend in Copenhagen and then invited people to come along on this uh, tour. And it was, I, don't know, I think we were like 15, 16 people, way too many. I learned a lot, but, uh, but it was fun. And then um, shortly after we met, we did something similar in Singapore because we were there for the 50 best awards and um, we thought it'd be, be a fun idea to do a, a food tour of Singapore. Because I had been there many times because I have some friends who live there. So we had done the research and knew where to take people. I think that's the thing when, uh, you know, when we've done all this research and like be like online, but also eating out as much as we do, you know, we generally know like which places like are the best in town. That That is our goal, at least. So when people come to us asking, you know, for a food tour specifically, uh, we can we can recommend things. So with. We started these food tours in Copenhagen last year when we were locked down here because we're like, hey, we're here. You know, if you're coming to town and mostly people in Denmark or Norway could come for a little bit. But uh, if you're coming to town and you want someone to guide you to the best spots, you know, we can be your guides. And we, we left it kind of open where if they wanted a custom tour, then they could just tell us their wishes. And some people knew like, you know, OK, I, I want to be taken to the best pastry shop. I want to have a burger and I want to have you know, something else, X, Y, Z, but it, it depends what it's very personal, I think, based what on what people want. So if you want the best omakase menu, you know, we, we've done all this research and we can guide you there. Um, or we can just, you know, curate our own little short trip and show you a few highlights. If you just have a, a couple hours, then we can pick some of our favorites. Uh, but it's very open to, to what people want as well. So 
Anders, you sent me through a question about building food communities. So, you know, you can take this as a leading question to talk a little bit about that if, if you'd like. But I, I've also seen it with, um, do you guys follow Iz Harris and what she's doing with Bright Trip? So she's also a YouTuber. She was she did a big a couple series on Eater uh, here in the U.S. They Eater I think chose her to be like the host of a couple of uh, series that they did on Eater's channel. And uh, her husband is is Johnny Harris, who did the Vox series Borders. And so and they have two kids, so they travel around with their kids and they go out to you know restaurants and you know all, all over all over the place pre COVID. But they launched this company called Bright Trip, which is doing something similar to what you're talking about more from the sense of like being able to do the whole package with like where to stay and what to go sightsee and do all that, that sorts of stuff. So do obviously in the, in the first few iterations of this, these people probably went to go out to eat with you guys. Uh, but as you're thinking about kind of like the curation element and being able to give someone a, a selective itinerary, potentially give them you know capacity to get tables at places where they couldn't do it on their own like how do you think through what you guys can provide value wise versus like this doesn't scale like Andres, you're saying like the 16 people is way too many um and just f like food communities in general how, do, how are you guys thinking about that well we we last year we started we launched this food tour concept first and part of the idea was just what you said like some people just wanted to eat with us so so we're like okay well we can't just go around eating with people uh, so we need to make this into some kind of product so we made food tours um, but we took it one step further uh, with Patreon uh, which we launched last year uh, and the whole idea of our Patreon was to create an online food community uh, that would hopefully be uh, interesting for our most, you know, hardcore followers. People have been following uh, us for a long time. And it's been really surprising. We're, we're so happy we did it. We now have a community of... Uh, of uh, 150 yeah, people. Yeah, closing in on 150 people. Amazing. But yeah, it's uh, it started as we thought people maybe wanted to connect on a deeper level with us, and we wanted to connect on a deeper level with our followers who you know, just message us all the time and ask us questions. I'm going here. Where should I go? You know, that's, it can be overwhelming on Instagram. So we wanted to have a forum for that, but it's, it's become so much more than just asking us because it is a community. So they've also got this whole group of over a hundred people to talk to and get recommendations from as well. So, you know, we'll go, you know, we're constantly on the forum, but sometimes before we can even answer something, someone else has already jumped in and recommended something. And it's this beautiful, thing where we're sharing and we're learning from our followers as well. And it's just, it's much bigger than we even thought it could be. So for, you know, back to your question about like planning trips, we do have a certain level of membership because um, we have different tiers that you can join the club. You can just subscribe to the online chat room or you can uh, get some access to meetups and events with chefs, stuff like that. And then the highest tier, um, if you're a member of that tier, then you can get access to this uh, travel concierge service is what we're calling it. So in that, if, if you're at that level of membership, then we once a year will plan a trip for you. Um, and you know, we're not promising any, any tables or anything like that. Of course, uh, you can't guarantee that, but if you give us enough warning, if you know six months in advance that you're coming to Copenhagen, we can do our best and we can create what our perfect itinerary would be for, for, for them. 
uh, taking their wishes in, into consideration. It doesn't have to be Copenhagen. It could be it could be anywhere. We'll do the research that we would do for ourselves. Um, but you know, in terms of scaling, of course, that can only be we set it at once a year per person um, for a trip. Yeah, otherwise, if someone is interested in more than that, maybe we'll have to start a concierge service. But <laughs> right now, because uh, people are asking that, so we, we want to be able to help, but it has to be. It's a lot of work, obviously. It's tons of work. And like, kudos to you guys for structuring it in a way where, you know, you put the limits on the things and you learn what works and what's like overwhelming or, you know, these people are asking too much. But, you know, like, there's a sense when people ask for recommendations like that, where it's like, they just want the answer to the test, you know, it's just like, just, just tell, just tell me the answer. Um, but there's an element of being able to, like you're talking about Caitlin, like being able to get a sense of what is it ex like exactly how do you travel? You know, like what, what, what are you, what are you looking to get out of? And that can only, I mean, we can hope that it can come from some sort of like chatbot thing in the future where people say like they input what they want and then based on your guys's most frequently given answers they can spit out a trip itinerary um i guess bigger goals for that like do you obviously you're, you spoke a little bit about like doing a full service concierge style service but you guys are just two people and when the you know the the opinions i guess or the suggestions are coming from you two like I guess, how are you thinking about growing that? Of course, anybody who's interested, it's going to be linked up in the show notes if anybody wants to go check it out. But yeah, can you speak a little bit about goals for that that project or what you would what you would consider a success uh, with that project? I don't think that necessarily the concierge service itself is the goal. Uh, that's more of like, at least right now, that's more of like a side part of it for people looking for that or at least a way for us to be able to offer, to, offer that to people looking to buy that from us. Um, I think maybe our goal is, and who knows where it's, it's still so new. We're just a few months into this food community, but right now it's been amazing to see how much it's growing in the first few months. I think we thought or hoped like, okay, maybe in the first year we can get a hundred members. Like that was kind of our, our goal for ourselves. And, you know, now we have 150 members in the first few months and it's just, it's amazing to see like food is something that really connects people all over the world. And something I was talking to Anders about earlier today was that like, we have this community of food friends around the world from chefs to, you know, social media friends, like through Instagram or in real life. However, we've met, like we know the people to ask for recommendations and to meet up with for a meal when we go places. And that's like why I love this industry so much, but the people who are following us and have the same passions as us, they might not have these same connections or, and, and I want to give them that community. I want, I want them to have someone to reach out to in Seattle, not just for recommendations, but also, Hey, do you want to meet me for a glass of wine? Or, you know, I, I want locals, like I would love to have people like, and it is all, all over the world already right now, but it's like maybe a couple people in each, in each country for the most part. So we kind of have like, you know, our own, regional people but i would love to have like little groups little sub communities of the hungries our community everywhere so that we have a, a little group in tokyo and we could meet up with them when we when we go there and get the the intel for the best restaurants right then and just these local food groups and, the, and yeah. then it's this bigger online food community as well where we're always talking and sharing knowledge and sharing recipes and sharing have you tried this wine bottle yet like everything exactly back to what you said about how like it's just the two of us yes but what we've learned from creating this food community is that it, it becomes 
not so much about us actually it becomes about the group because everyone's chipping in and everyone's helping each other and we're like if we're not online for a couple of hours and someone has asked a question you can bet that someone else has already answered it before we even log on we're more like moderating it at some times of course we're contributing as well but there's things where like there are experts like we have chefs and we have bartenders and we have bakers so we have we have so many bakers that they specifically ask for a breadheads is what we call it breadheads chat where they just talk about baking and sourdough all day long and i don't know what they're talking about half the time but if i ever want to start baking i will go there and i will ask them but they are helping each other like is this underproofed is this overproofed here's my bake today look at the crumb all of these i am like wow guys you are nerding out like go for it it's amazing it's awesome. same with, we have you know a bartender who someone's like oh i have you know i have this what, what what cocktail should i make with it and he's jumping in and giving recipe advice and it's just we can't even offer that so it's that's i think what it's becoming yeah that's great as you guys were thinking about publishing your own work um caitlin i know that you have kind of like a a I mean, call it a pseudonym, but it's like a play on your last name, right? Uh, as your as your account handle. But like thinking about showing your faces, doing your real names. Like I can only assume you book your reservations under your under your real name. Which when I was coming up, it was like the the you know kind of like 2012, 2013 ish was when it was like the pseudonymous kind of like uh, or anonymous critic was kind of like starting to become a bit of a thing of the past. How do you guys think about that? Like just being being so out there with your with your personalities because it's like it's what you want to lend to that subjective piece. That's what we talked about earlier. But you know, there is this sense of like really sharing your thoughts and opening the door to be vulnerable from that sense. So I guess how do you guys think about that? And I see it as a huge value prop. I'm so glad that I that I did everything under my own name, kind of like when I started publishing stuff. But I'd be curious if you guys grappled with that or if you have suggestions for people who are kind of like, uh, I don't know, like if I should do this under my own name or if I should start a blog named something else. It's a very interesting question. And the thing is, you know, you have to go back 10 years to when this kind of started for me. And uh, back then, I didn't think about that decision. You know, it wasn't like, uh, oh, should I be anonymous? Should I not be anonymous? It was just a personal Instagram profile where I started putting out First of all, stuff I was cooking at home, and then later on, it, it, it turned into more about going out to eat. Uh, but I, I've always done it under my own name, and I guess you kind of have to, even though you have like a nickname. Yeah, uh, it's, a, as your it's always said my name on my profile anyway. Yeah, and we we've talked about this so many times. Uh, whether it's like you know, there's pros and cons. Uh, having your name out there. First of all, yes, you do open yourself up for criticism. People definitely know uh, who you are and it's very personal. Like if someone decides to attack you for some reason, it's it's very much you they attack and not an organization. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't do it any other way. I think being anonymous is a, a little bit more a thing of a past, even though you can definitely like come with good arguments for why it's why it makes sense as well. But I wouldn't have done anything different. I think it's like for us, uh, and I started the same as Anders, um, just, you know, it was a hobby. It wasn't planning to be more than that. Um, but I think like from, from us, why we do what we do is just out of a place of passion for food. 
we just love food so much. And our goal is really just to highlight our best food experiences around the world, wherever we go here or abroad. And it's just then by putting our faces and our names out there, like whether it's whether you're watching a video of me eating something like, you know, we're just trying to be real and bring you into the experience with us as if you're there and like open it up to the world. So you can see like, you know, people reply to our stories even and are like, oh, like, oh, you like, I could tell from your reaction, like that you didn't love that pastry as much as the one before or something like, you know, they can, they can tell it's real. Like, it's just very, like, it's all out there in the open. And but that's what we want it to be. Like we want it to be honest. And of course it's just, it's our opinions. It's, it's not an overall opinion. This is our opinion. So if we say something is the best or we recommend something, that's because we love it. And hopefully people who follow our recommendations have the same taste as us, but yeah, it is very personal, but I think it's kind of nice because then people start to get a sense for like what we do like. And then they start recommending places based on things that we have posted that we do like ourselves. So I'll get messages like, oh, Caitlin, like I saw this croissant in, in Paris. It made me think of you. Like you would love this. You have to try this because they know what I like because it's, it's us. Yeah. And also going back to your question about like what, what advice would we give someone starting? I think you have to... I mean, you can never know where you end up, but you, if, if you are strategically going into starting to blog about food, you should definitely give it some thought in terms of, am I mostly interested in covering my local food scene? In which case you should probably, you know, you could pick a name that has something to do with the city you're living in or something like that. And I think that can, gi- that can give a, initially a boost uh, to, your, to your work because it's very recognizable. You know, if I had called myself Oslo Food back in the days when I lived in Oslo, then people would have been, okay, this is this account is about Oslo food in Oslo. But then if you'd started traveling. But then if I started <laughs> traveling and posting from all over the world and suddenly my name doesn't make as much sense, and now moving to Copenhagen and for you as well, moving from LA to Copenhagen, it wouldn't have made sense if our handles were connected to our cities, and then we would have regretted that decision probably. Uh, but it definitely has some some perks to have a name that is uh, linked to something as well, like have food in your name or yeah, a city in your name. There's or... pros and cons, but I think, you know, like we've leaned on our names and our identities and our personalities instead of like the identity of a city. And of course, we are in Copenhagen and we've been here like for the majority of the last obviously the last year and we'll yeah. probably be here quite a lot. But we also do hope to explore beyond the city. So. But I think also for people following us, they know that even though we use our names, it's not really about us. I mean, in everything we do, we showcase the restaurants, we showcase the chefs. Um, you know, we, we, we talk with the chefs, we interview chefs in our YouTube videos. It, it's about showcasing the amazing places out there. Yeah, we want to show from But like, with a personal touch and, yeah. you know, yeah, it is also our opinions in many, uh, many uh, ways. And uh, I think, you know, our YouTube channel is the the videos are from like Anders first person perspective. So you can see you can see it's like as if you're sitting in his seat at the table and the waiter is bringing a dish to him. And okay, he pans up and I'm sitting across from him and I'm eating it because we we do want to show like, okay, was this how was it? Is it good? Okay, wow, this dish was really good. You know, we we want to bring it to life, um, but it's you know, we want it to be like anyone could be dining there. It gets, I mean, a little, this is a little bit back to my point of like, 
the people that say that you need to blow up world's 50 best and, and start with something new there's a sense of like oh well, you're just you're just saying good things about your friends when you when you talk about places where you develop a connection with the chef or the team or the the project in general and i think it's like play play the play the other end of that spectrum right the 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 person who goes out to eat completely by themselves they have no friends they have completely anonymous personas when they go out to eat it's like who would want to do that as a career you know like it's just it, it's it's so funny to me that like that ends up being the thing that people are like because the opposite of you know what you we are talking about from the sense of like when you go to a city, if you if you're in New York, you're gonna go see your friends in New York. You're gonna go eat at their restaurants. You're gonna have experiences there, and you're gonna share and put them on blast. And like it's like the gas your friends up thing, you know. Like you you want to show your homies the love, but then it like gets misconstrued as this thing where it's like, oh well, you're using your platform to just put your friends on. But it's like, of course I am kind kind of kind of thing. So it's like, do, do you guys grapple with that? at all uh especially knowing that you're you're doing this under your own name and then i, I have a quick follow-up question after that too i think uh for us i i don't know so far at least i think for us like we become friends with people after we've gone to a restaurant a bunch of times and if we've gone to a restaurant a bunch of times that's because we love it so then if we're posting about it you know like if we go like i, I don't know you know what i yeah, mean yeah yeah I know like what you mean. it's like well, why do we come? Why do we become friends with people? It's because we we've become regulars at this restaurant because it's so good and we can't get enough of it and we can't stop posting about it. And now we're friends with the team there, and of course we're going to keep posting about it and recommending it. And naturally, your experience going in is going to be different than someone who's never stepped foot in that place before, you know. And it's right. yeah, and people I, just get it twisted. I think. And and I think that's also an argument for why you should never just take one person's opinion and go with Correct. only that. Like, no, you shouldn't just use our recommendations when you visit Copenhagen. You should probably check with a couple of other people, too, because obviously we're we're going to be skewed in one direction. We have a particular taste, like this is what we prefer. And, of course, when you're a regular at a restaurant, you enjoy it more because you treat it as a friend when you enter, right? So uh, you might you might go there and not as, have as great of an experience because you're not friends with them yet or you're not recognized when you enter. And everyone wants to, like, feel welcome, so I think, you know, just doing research and, yeah, checking multiple guides and checking with more than just one of your chef friends before you, uh, before you eat in a city is a, is a good idea. My follow-up question was going to be in relation to you two effectively working together, right? Like you guys, you know, live together, you work together. Uh, I made the very for me, strategic decision to not date in the industry. I cannot date uh, someone who is a, a chef or a pastry chef or a psalm. Um, how has that been? Like, how 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 do you guys grapple with that? If, if someone is uh, working with their partner, do you guys have any advice uh, that's been helpful for you? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a problem when we're talking over each other in podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Well, before all, you, we started talking, you guys referenced yourself as a singular unit, which is amazing. But at the same time, it's like I can only imagine that comes with conflicts at certain points in time. So, No, absolutely. But I mean, the thing is, we both have been in relationships before we met that was not related to the industry. So we know, you know, the challenges with that. Uh, and we know the 
the, the, the pros and cons of being in the same industry and, and doing the work together as we do. And now we've even had to do the work together from our home the whole year, you know? <laughs> you literally confined to the same tiny apartment, nonstop every day. <laughs> no, I think... I think for us, it's just like we happened to meet each other when we had already been doing the exact same thing across the world. And we both were pretty committed to that lifestyle. And all of a sudden we had discovered, oh, my gosh, there's this like th there's this male version of me in Norway who's doing exactly what I'm doing. And he's as crazy about food as I am. And like, I think we both were the single diners a lot of the, even, even if we were in relationships, regardless, like, I think we were the party of one at the restaurant and that is not as fun. And it's just also, it's a lot more work, I think, doing this alone than doing it together. And now that we are a team, like it just made so much sense instantly. Like pretty much after we started dating, we combined forces because okay, now Anders can take the photos and I don't have to worry about the camera, which I'm not as comfortable with. And I can write notes at the restaurant and be remembering those details. And Anders can be filming and then I can do more of the writing. And we, we split the tasks in a way that like, now we can get more done because there's two of us instead of one person each. Yeah, I mean, overall, the pros really outweigh the, the cons uh, by a lot. Uh, and But we just need to be you know, we just need to be aware of uh, our situation and make sure that we sometimes, you know, take a break from food because sometimes it, it becomes too much. Like we we're even like watching uh, food shows on our television when we're not working. Maybe we should just watch something else. Maybe yeah. uh, maybe we shouldn't uh, necessarily uh, be reading Ruth Reichel in our free time. Well, exactly <laughs> what I am, though. <laughs> it's an obsession. But I also think like, I think the hardest part is that we're always working, never working. And that is like, it's a dream job and it is, and it's so much fun and I love what we do and I couldn't do anything else, but also we are always doing it. Like we are always online. We don't have a holiday. Our holidays are our work because even if we wanted to, like, even if we said, okay, we're not going to work this week and we go <laughs> to, what are we going to do? We're going to plan a trip around food and then what are we going to do we're going to document it we're not going to just not document it that would just be like kicking ourselves in the in the feet our, our most like nights off are when we go back to a place we've been so many times that we couldn't care less if we took a photo of the food yeah we might still take a photo of the food no, with, with, Instagram with stories you know <laughs> we might still take a phone photo but the point is we don't have to you know yeah, it's like more we, like leave the camera at home and like go out without you know you can you can drink an extra bottle of wine because you don't have to be like focused you know you're just relaxed so, but the thing is how this whole thing started for me was going on holidays and eating crap food and being sick and tired of it so i would like start like back then like 15 years ago i would maybe start doing the research while on the trip horrible idea of course and then every like what did you have back then trip you had advisor. you had like trip advisor and maybe that could at least guide you to where there was a restaurant but you had no clue if it was a good restaurant and maybe there was a photo or two online what uh, were you both doing for work when you started because you you both mentioned that you weren't doing this you know originally for for dollars yeah for uh, uh, I, my background is marketing and I was working in sales and marketing first for an IT company and later on for a newspaper. So I had a little bit of an idea of the whole media world, uh, but 
food was definitely just a hobby and at some point I decided to make it uh, my job. You were kind of fresh out of uh, I was college. A student. I was a, a student in New York, living uh, living in New York. I'm from LA, but was in New York when I started uh, an Instagram um, just because as a poor student, I didn't have the budget to go out to eat and I wanted to make it if I made it a hobby or made it work for myself, like, oh, I'm going to blog about this on Instagram, then I can go out and treat myself. And yeah, I, I, I studied psychology and English, so I wasn't expecting this to become my full-time job. But ever since I was little, I said I wished I could eat for a living. So it's uh, pretty, pretty sweet that it's worked out. <laughs> but back to the, like the trip planning, because that's, that's, that, that becomes really hard now. We can't really go anywhere without planning the food. And as we talked about it the other day, maybe we should have a holiday soon where we don't like care about where we go to eat. But then you're like, oh man, that's going to be sad. <laughs> what's the, not, it's not what's the point. It's just that it's so beneficial to structure a trip where ar- around those premises, because it's like, you have to eat three times a day or two times yeah. a day, you know, depending on the person, right? And so it's just easier to like, if you're going to Paris and you want to go see a certain site, like at a certain time of day, like where are you going to eat lunch around there? And to exactly. your point a little bit, Anders, you can you can just go to the first place on the corner, you know, and potentially have a really bad meal. Or yeah. you could just do like a touch more work. Like it's really not that much time. It's maybe like 45 minutes of extra work. Uh to figure out like this is actually going to be a really memorable and it's like you hear stories of um so my dad just retired and he tells me stories about his um unfortunately his his health is not great and all he wanted to do when he retired was travel and eat and when you hear people that are old retired talking about trip experiences what's the first thing that they usually talk about is like something that they ate usually you know it's like some sort of food experience and so I don't, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, give you some moral support there. Like it, it's actually like you're planning your trips in the right way. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's like, if we're going somewhere and we are planning our meals and why, like in our, in our position or from our perspective, then why wouldn't we document it? Why wouldn't we yeah. turn that into something that could help others? And that's, what's really hard. Like we, we can't really just go somewhere and just relax, I guess. And I think, <laughs> I think that's just what we have to keep in mind. And what I think we've tried to accept, especially in this last couple of years of merging our, our business into one is just like, okay so we are working most of the time but like let's make it enjoyable like let's make our work so fun that it doesn't feel like work and like that I think we have such a lucky life like and to be able to go travel and go to these places and you know yes we we have to do the work of documenting them and writing about them and it's a lot more work than people think but it's I guess one of the one of the best like holidays we've had recently was when your parents were here because we spent two weeks just going to places we had been because we just wanted to show them the best spots, right? So we didn't need to document anything. We didn't need to like make anything. We could just show them. Yeah. So that was kind of a holiday for yeah. them and us. Amazing. You've you've interviewed a lot of chefs as part of these experience videos and blog posts on on the site, which I have to say I think is amazing. Like it's something that I hope to incorporate you know like i i see a a full suite kind of like content thing around a certain chef when it's okay to travel for me again where it's like i do a long form conversation like this and then i also go out to eat 
at that restaurant and then I, you know, get to talk to some of his line cooks because that's something that like I'm really passionate about. And then it's like this whole suite of content that I can put out about about an experience and about a location and about a chef. But one thing that I think you get from those conversations, hopefully you get, is a sense of that chef's philosophy. And what I will sometimes call like what the chef has to say. And so as kind of a meta question, when you ask those questions to chefs, what are you looking for in those answers? Yeah, I think uh, especially if it's if it's a new restaurant or at least new to us, we want to uncover like the essence of what it's all about because you, with a, with our YouTube videos, you know, it's not it's not a full length chef chef's table episode. It's pretty short, so we we want to ask the right questions that get to the heart of what this chef is about, whether that's sustainability and all the ingredients coming from this mile radius around his restaurant. Like, what is it? Or is it nothing related to sustainability? Is it getting the best ingredients from all over the world and sourcing them from where, however far you have to get them? Like, whatever it is, it's different for each person. And I think it's like doing research ahead of time and knowing about them to be able to ask the right questions, which we write in advance so that we're prepared. And then also seeing where the conversation goes and just trying to connect. And Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because, you know, as with everything we do, we've, we we kind of just, you know, we start doing it without thinking too much. And then as we uh, and then we learn as we go. So with these chef interviews in the beginning, we weren't really super prepared, to be honest. Like we, we, we thought, well, we'll just wing it. We'll just talk with them and have a conversation and we'll get something out of it, you know. And then you start realizing, man, it's really hard to get people to talk about the core, the essence of what you want them to say, because we have an idea of what we want them to say so that we can use it in our video. But it's hard to get people to say it in like a short, concise, <laughs> precise way. But I'm I'm trying to to tease out in this answer for the chefs that are listening. Like, it's, I mean, it's part of the reason why I think I find myself moving more in the direction of projects that I've been working on, because I don't think that I have anything unique to say with my food yet that isn't already out there, or hasn't already been said. And so I'm working on these other projects until something will happen in my life where I say, this is what I have to say about this. I'm like, and the only way to bring this to life and put this out into the world is with, you know, insert thing, a food truck or a restaurant concept or a taste encounter or whatever. And I think chefs don't off like you do all the work of like meeting with architects and building out the space and hiring staff and creating dishes and doing all this stuff. But you don't actually know what it is that you have to say or like Anders, you're talking about that one line of like, this is why. I'm doing this, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, I'm trying to get chefs to be more comfortable with having those hard conversations with not just themselves, but like really just like distilling it down into this thing. Cause it makes it so much easier to talk to, you know, content creators like you, like the media, it, it makes it easier to talk to your staff. It makes it easier to train people. It makes it easier to write menus when it's like you point the ship in the direction, you know, that you're of what you're trying to do. And, and uh, I think, I, first of all, I think there's a good market for you out there to consult on that because I think a lot of chefs could need that training. Uh, and it's so easy to spot when a chef have, has had that training. Like we interviewed uh, Rasmus Kofod from Geranium for one of our videos. And we did not shoot anything twice. And at the end, I, I, yeah, exactly. I remember at the end of that interview, we, we said to him, you're a natural. This was great. You know, thank you for your 
eight minutes, which will probably be cut down to six minutes, you know. <laughs> Amazing. If, like, you know, if it's a new up and coming chef, they're maybe a little bit more nervous on camera or like you can see that they have so much passion inside them, but they're having a hard time articulating it, what like what it is. And it's just, you know, trying to make them like you have to like make them like have confidence in themselves and you'd be like you're doing something amazing like we really want to showcase your restaurant and like we believe in it and we believe in you and like please believe in yourself because you are doing something very cool and unique and yeah. sometimes I think it just takes a little bit of like getting comfortable with us you know usually interviews like that just take longer because we just try to have a natural conversation with them first. And yeah. then once they relax a little bit, then they can be more open. And that's, that's a key point because we always try to make our interviews more like conversations. We kind of set it up so that the chef is facing Caitlin and who's asking the questions. And then I'm kind of on the side with the camera, which is a nice angle anyway for an interview. I don't, I hate the kind of like looking into the lens kind of style. Uh, so that makes it a little easier. And I think we've just learned to do like, do like a 15, 20 minute just chat before we really get into the questions and what we want them to say. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. also funny because, uh, one thing that made me laugh, uh, is that chefs like, I don't know, know their dishes so well or something. Like sometimes we ask them to like highlight a couple signature dishes that we are maybe going to shoot in the kitchen or something like that, just to get the specific details. And I think, I don't know, maybe this is just one person, maybe this is not true for all chefs, but I feel like there's been times where maybe the front of house has been more trained on to on how to present the dish. And the chef just will say like, you know, I'm like, oh, what's a signature dish on the menu right now? And they'll be like, scallops. <laughs> I'm like, cool. are they served with some <laughs> sauce? Like, are they cooked? So are they raw? Like, you know, you have to, and then they're like, oh, right. You don't know what I'm talking about because they're so used to it. They know it so well. Or they will go into way too many details about the cooking process, but not so much about what's on your plate, what you're going to see. So we're like, okay, but could you just summarize the, uh, the main element? <laughs> you present it like you would present it to the table, you know, scallop with this sauce and topped with this herb and whatever. Yeah. But I mean, I can relate. I am not super comfortable on camera and I can kind of relate with a lot of them when they're nervous and uh, you know I have no problem with you know talking to you even though we're on camera now because we're just having a conversation so that's and that how makes, we try to make it feel yeah, for them and that makes all the difference I think it just takes practice sure. I have a whole I have a whole video on the channel that talks um it's called how to talk about food because I think it's so crucially important and one exercise that I gave to chefs that I think is valuable for myself when I'm writing menus is to when you write a dish you write it in three ways so you write the dish on how it's going to be written on the paper menu, even if you don't have a paper menu. You write how you're going to talk about it with the with the chefs, because that's adders to your point when you're talking about like something is sous vide and it's dressed with this oil and it's uh, the acid in this dish is going to be whatever. And then you have your what you're going to tell the guest at the table, which is usually like the short and sweet. Maybe you fluff it up with a little bit of language. Talk about where the you know mushrooms are coming from, for example. Uh, and they're all different. Like they're all different. They have different use applications and you use different language and you approach them in different ways. Maybe even the way that you order the words is different. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to share, like a little bit of a chef anecdote is that there's a certain sense when you get to a certain place of doing either the same menu structure or the same dish over and over again, is you fall into almost like this, this, um, circus performer mindset where it's like, you see the same show every single night, so you don't think it's special. 
But like to someone who's never been to that restaurant before, it's like totally mind blowing and they've never seen it before. But like yeah. maybe it's like the magician's dilemma because it's like, you know how the trick works, you know, so it's not special to you. But to the right. audience member who's never seen it before, it's like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Totally. Yeah. It's uh, it's got to be hard. You know, it's uh, <laughs> you have to constantly remember you're you have an audience and you're a performer. Exactly. I want to jump into some rapid fire questions. Let's do some rapid fire ones. Is there a book that's been particularly impactful for for both of you in your in your respective careers? Hmm. Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is not actually a book, but it is a food writer. So um, I'm going to go with my my always reference, which is Jonathan Gold's um, L.A. Times food writer. And his, the documentary about his life, City of Gold, was just so impactful. Like, I could list a bunch of books I love reading, and I could list all of the food writing books that I love. But for me, City of Gold is even more of an impact. And then his reviews that are referenced in that documentary, his writing is just amazing. And I think he just showed readers that you don't have to, like, food is for everyone, and you don't have to be an elitist person you know you don't have to be a rich person to love food you can go into your strip mall and find an amazing meal and i think it just brought it to life in a new way caitlin reads like a hundred books or more a year she's insane she she reads constantly either a book in paper or on her uh, audio book or an kindle? kindle or an audio book there's always something playing i'm i i take all of that and i usually spend that time either learning something new on YouTube or watching something uh, on YouTube. I, I read way less than you, but I, I have been reading some, some classic, uh, classic books in the last year, like Anthony Bourdain from the kitchen of Potentials. And right now I'm, um, I'm reading, uh, Ruth Reichel, uh, Gar garlic and sapphires. Yeah. I mean, it could effectively be a question. I, you could replace book with podcast or YouTube video or documentary. I just like to kind of get to the essence of things that have an impact on people and how they approach their work uh which other one so i'd be curious because you guys post a ton what's something that doesn't end up on your instagram as in you don't share it widely but secretly you get really excited about it or you love it golden retrievers <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's less secret oh. now because uh i yeah i have posted a golden retriever lately but like all like if I'm not following food, like on my personal account, all I follow is golden retrievers. No food, just dogs. That's so true. <laughs> that is so true. And now as an effect, because she's sending me so much golden retriever retriever videos, my like uh, suggested explorer feed on Instagram is starting to fill up with dogs. And I'm like, oh, well, what is this? <laughs> the algorithm. The algorithm. Oh yeah. <laughs> Would you guys get one? Would you guys get a golden retriever? We would love to get one. Unfortunately, I discovered... Uh, My when, parents uh, have one in, uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, I discovered the hard way that I am allergic to dogs. <laughs> right. I, had, I had never had a dog uh, or like... <laughs> Never had a dog at, at my home and uh, went there for the first time to visit our parents. And after a week, just like could not breathe. So uh, we sad. will be getting a hypoallergenic dog. Yeah, in our that's, that's our plan. <laughs> Anything for you, Anders? Something that sticks out that you don't share it, but you secretly 
enjoy it. Or you could. The, the other question that's interesting for you, because you know what it's like to build an account, is that if you had to build a pseudonymous account around something, what, what could you build it on? Exactly. Well, the first thing that came to mind when you asked the question was that my love for milk does not come across <laughs> as much on Instagram as it maybe should. I'm I like did a... hear that that's your favorite ice cream. Yes. <laughs> it's beyond ice cream, though. He drinks like a gallon a day. <laughs> like, this is not an exaggeration. He has a problem. <laughs> Just straight up whole milk. Yes. There's... Like, from a local farm. Justin, when you come to Copenhagen next time, I'm going to introduce you, and you will be you, you will be mind blown. The, the milk we've discovered here in Copenhagen. You like, don't have I... one in the fridge to no, show? No, I actually don't. We were out, which is it's a bit gone. of a surprise. Yeah, it's They're a like a the crisis. glass, like the glass bottles, like from the farm, like old school. No, but you know, I I've always loved milk, and I thought, you know, surely Norway has the best milk in the world. But I have discovered that actually that is here in Copenhagen. There's a small farm outside Copenhagen that makes the most insane milk I've ever tasted. It's just so creamy, so sweet, and so delicious. Are you it's... gonna start crying? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in a the like highest dairy producing state in the US, which is Wisconsin. And so I, we're more of a, we call ourselves a cheese state. So it's more of a, a cheese uh, love for me than uh, milk itself, but I can empathize. Oh, this is okay. So this, this might actually turn into another podcast by asking you guys this question. You somehow get a call right after this interview that you've just won an all expenses paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant. And when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to talk with waiting to have dinner with you. What is that restaurant and who is that person? We know where it is. Yeah. I think, mm. I, think I know who you'd like to talk to there. Well, and the for you two, maybe to add a fun twist to it, it can be like it's a four top, right? So it's like it's a, it's a double date or it's just like a, it's a four top doesn't have to be a double date. But you know what I mean? I mean, mm. our favorite restaurant in the world right now and has been for the last two years is uh, Francaine in Stockholm. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and we're really craving to go back there right now because we haven't been uh, in uh, over a year and a half. Uh, your wasn't it your birthday last? No, my birthday right. last time in 2019. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, I'm sure you'd uh, like to dine with uh, Jonathan Gold. I yeah, I would have loved to uh, dine with Jonathan Gold. I feel like he. Is was just such a wealth of food knowledge. It would have been what amazing. do you think he would have thought of Franzen's tasting menu? Oh, I'm sure he would have loved it. Um, I I know he went to no, the new Noma right bef right uh, before he passed away. <laughs> he he went uh, right after they opened, and I know at that time I think he called it the best restaurant in the world. So I know he had a great appreciation for Scandinavian cuisine. Um, I mean, I haven't read as much uh, of his writing as Kajun has, but I've read a bit. And he just had such a respect for the food culture wherever he went. And, and for uh, the chefs. Like, he was a chef's critic, you know? He was always, like, even when critiquing, uh, he just, he just you could tell he wanted them to succeed. Like, and if he was critiquing something, it was just, like, it's because he was like almost like a disappointed parent. Like you can do better than this. This is not your best. Why did you have this on the menu? This is not, this is not you. Like it just, not that he would write it like that, but that's just the sense of care you felt from him. Yeah. yeah. Who's your person, Anders? Dinner guest. I don't know. 
I was going to say Obama. Um, no, Stephen Colbert, maybe. <laughs> I was thinking. I was thinking Obama. I too. was thinking Obama too, yeah. but that's like he seems like he uh, is a guy foodie. I'm... Obama is a super food. Yep. So that's cool. He seems like a guy I'd like to have a conversation with. But I mean, the amount of uh, the Daily Show you watch, oh, yeah. I think you would. I'm also like... a big fan of Stephen Colbert. Yeah. What's one thing you've changed your mind on in recent memory? Hmm. Well, reading. Ruth Reichel right now has made me realize that the power of being and going back to our conversation, the power of being anonymous in a restaurant. And, and that, at least it's made me realize, you know, how important it can be to explore a place from a point of view where you're, yeah, the, the chefs don't know you. I love when she does the side by side reviews of like one dressed in this disguise and one as, you know, as the, the New York Times critic and you can see the differences. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it, it makes us just be more aware of our work. Like we, we are not booking anonymously when we go out to eat, uh, but, uh, you know, you just you just have to be aware of the fact that when you're not, you can get treated differently and, and try to sort of see it from a, from a, from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Caitlin, change your mind. Mm -hmm. You know, um, maybe like something like COVID related would be like, I don't know, we were traveling at this super aggressive, fast pace, uh, just like you, like on a plane every couple of weeks in, in 2019. And like that is so fun and I love traveling and I miss it so much right now. But I think like I, I previously I would go a little bit stir crazy, like between trips, like got to go, got to get back on the road. And this year I think has taught me it's really good to slow down and to have spaces between trips and have home cooked meals and have time to anticipate your next trip and get excited for it. And I think that is something that we're missing from our lifestyle and that hopefully like even once the world reopens, I think we will try to slow it down a bit with the pace and just like, hello, we, we live in an amazing city. Like we were going to be, we were going to be gone out of Copenhagen for most, for a lot of 2020. And then the world was like, nope, you're going to stay right here. And I think you just, you have to appreciate where you live as well. That's as so true. Being on the go. It makes you uh, potentially less prone to the i'll call it like the the expectation trap like when you're so like itching to travel i feel like sometimes i mean i'm speaking for myself i suppose i will over inflate how excited i am for an experience and i think i certainly find that if you over inflate those expectations you're putting so much unnecessary pressure on the the restaurant to meet them sometimes when you get there and then it can often like sometimes the best experiences can be the unexpected ones where you just weren't expecting to be blown away by this place. And in that there's, there's some wisdom maybe. I definitely feel that's true. And I think that's like, it's just so much about managing expectations and trying, trying to lower expectations, even about hyped places or places that you've heard great things about, because like, it's just, that's, that hype is also not fair to restaurants because they might be a great restaurant, but if they're seen as like up here and then, yeah. Yeah. We were talking about that today, actually, that there was this restaurant, uh, when we were in Mexico that was hyped to the, you know, 
sky. Uh, um, going like first of all, we were a little bit skeptical about the hype, but uh, but but it kind of makes you expect things, even if you're skeptical about it. It's and, hard to it's hard to manage that. Yeah, and then going there and having a good meal, but nothing near anywhere near the yeah exactly it wasn't life-changing it was just a good meal like a kind of like a home-cooked style kind of meal and you're almost like this chef never wanted to be compared to this 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 chef just wanted to make a simple simple meal and that like he didn't deserve to be compared to these top top restaurants exactly yeah an interesting point to your answer anders was I think there's there's a lot of people who stumble into either writing about food or posting about food, but I can compl- and we've seen it play out with certain individuals in in the in the space. But this this sense of I'm gonna start a a food media company anonymously, very strategically, with the goal to once I hit a certain following, I'm gonna because you like you get this weird hype around being like who is it i wonder who who's going to do this stuff so it's like it's almost like pouring gasoline on on building an audience because you can do it potentially faster because you have this thing that people like us don't have which is like this um mystique around around you and then you can get to this point where you you have you know you reach a certain level or you go to a certain number of places and then all of a sudden it's like you make an event out of releasing your identity and then it's like it's even more you know of a big boost and if you do that strategically like you could potentially um, it's like a, a bit of a funny funny hack but a lot of us didn't start off that way um, so I don't know I'm putting that idea out there for anybody who wants to jump on it. Exactly, and once you ha- haven't started that way, it's kind of hard to go back Can't and put that work. genie back in the box. Exactly. <laughs> Can't cover this beard in this. Beard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take a big wig. How do you guys make your eggs in the morning? Scrambled, soft, soft scrambled. Very slowly cooked, just nothing added, just eggs, a little bit of salt, and just slowly cooked until they're pillowy soft. I normally ask this question to chefs in relation to, to kitchen technique, but the, the essence of the question is to try to tease out craft improvement. And so the question is, is there a technique that you're still intimidated by in the kitchen, but you guys can replace in the kitchen with writing or editing or building community, like something you're still intimidated by that you're working to get, get better at? In the kitchen. Or anything. Or anything. Video editing, like, I'm so scared to open a 360 or VR video timeline because I just have no idea how to edit that. Like, I can do a straight up 1080p or 4K timeline, but when you're talking about all this, or animation, like, I I have no idea how to animate things. I would love to learn how, but I'm still intimidated by if someone came to me and said, I need you to animate this thing, I would have no idea what to do. I think I'm... I'm kind of intimidated by most things I don't know. And that fear of, of not doing things well enough makes me push myself harder, you know, because everything, everything we do, we've kind of learned just by doing like, we're not trained. I have never taken any classes in photography or videography. I learn everything I know from either just doing it or watching some kind of YouTube instructional video until I know how to do it. Um, so I'm like you, like, I'm, I'm really scared that the next job we'll get will require some kind of, uh, technique that I, that I don't have yet. 
uh, or, or a skill I don't have yet. And, uh, and that just makes me, you know, uh, work harder to, to sort of cover that gap. And, and on that topic, I just spent like, I think you can confirm about 16, 17 hours straight watching YouTube videos, most of them on two times speed to learn more about lighting. And I was going to give you a compliment for the lighting in uh, your video right now. I can Thank see you. that you've done, uh, you've done your work. Yeah, you have the nice uh, green light in the background. Your your face is perfectly lit. We can see the cover of your <laughs> of your body and your hair. It's a nice uh, fade out, blur. Exactly, exactly. It's literally a corner of our kitchen. I would move the camera, but I don't want to screw up my thing. But like my stove is like right there, it's and it's right literally a, a corner. But like. I can move this and it's like a soft box kind of kind of thing. It just works. I don't know. I stumbled into it and I used to have it for ages where the camera was on a tripod next to me and it caused yeah. a bunch of line issues and the lighting was never right because I wasn't close enough to this source. So I had to put a light there. It's always a learning thing. Like you learn so much. And you don't want to break the illusion by moving the camera now because now it's like you're in a really professional spot, right? And, and that's the thing you can, you can, you can. There's many tricks to cover up uh, stuff when you work with uh, pho photography and videography. Yeah. Like you see these, uh, like behind the scenes of these Instagram shots where they're, it's like it's a pool filled with uh, oranges and they just have the model laying in the oranges and the camera on top and it looks like a pool of oranges, but it's just a little kids pool. <laughs> yeah. but, I mean, what I can certainly speak to is that like once I figured out this setup, it made me so much more confident in producing stuff. And that's effectively what you're trying to get to, right? Like you want to be able to not be stressing about the lighting so you can focus on the food that's coming to you or the, 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 the conversation you're having with the chef that you're interviewing, right? Like, it's not, and it's like, you want to be proud of what you're creating, of course, but it's like it, these secondary benefits are just fascinating once you learn these skills. Exactly. And, and I, I, that reminds me of one of the first time I shot a, a video in a restaurant for YouTube and, you know, it's just for myself. I'm not working for anyone. I just, I'm shooting this video for myself, but I still, I, I want it to be good. And then in the middle of the meal, I've touched some kind of setting and I didn't know my camera well enough back then, so I couldn't immediately identify what it was. So I had screwed up some kind of setting and everything looked horrible. And I just remember that feeling, freaking out because you're in the middle of the meal. You don't really have time to start watching some kind of YouTube video on how to fix it. But uh, I sorted it out and uh, managed to continue shooting. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Technique for so you, Caitlin? Intimidation? Uh, I don't know. I'm not doing the technical stuff um, so much. I think if anything, like not intimidated, but something that I find maybe the most challenging right now in our work is trying to find that balance, like for in, in writing about food and restaurants, that, that balance between like recommending something and critiquing something and like being honest with our followers at all times but being like as fair as possible to the restaurant and just like navigate it's such a difficult uh place to navigate because i know that our followers really appreciate our honest opinions but at the same time we don't want to be unnecessarily harsh and that's just something that we constantly struggle with like is this worth posting about? Like, you know, is it is it helpful? Is it providing information to people to show them like 
is this place super hyped and we need to help manage their expectations about it because then maybe they will have a better experience because they don't have expectations up here, you know, or is it just a tiny little shop that nobody cares about anyway? And if you had a bad sandwich there, then okay, just move on. We're not going to post about it. And I think that's something that, you know, it just, you, cause really we want to only recommend places and, most of the places that we do post about we're recommending overall, but it's just like, you know, again, just put it back to putting our names and faces out there. It's, it can be hard because nobody likes to hear negative feedback or criticism, even if it's meant in a constructive way. So that's yeah. something that I find challenging. That's definitely one thing we've learned and that goes like out to your audience, which is mostly chefs and industry people like every, every like, Chefs want, want critiques to be fair and, you know, critique a place when it deserves to be critiqued. And, but nobody wants their place to be <laughs> the one that is judged hard. Uh, and and we, we can see how chefs are like, even if we write an overall positive review, if we, the, their focus will be on the one negative thing that we pointed out. And, and yeah. Yeah, it's hard. The question that I, and this, your, your answer might have already been said, but the last rapid fire question I had was, what do you think chefs can be doing better to help the next generation? So maybe there's some, you know, nugget of wisdom in that being able to learn how to take feedback or look at feedback as something that it's, it's not a personal attack, you know, it's discussing your work in a hopefully constructive way. But um, the other way I was going to present that to you that might have, you know, provided a different answer or might be easier to answer is, what do you think, like, content creators slash food media can be doing better to help the next generation of food media? So you can take that whichever direction you'd like. I think for all industries, like, around the world, I think the best thing you can do is to share knowledge and to help each other. And instead of seeing everybody, whether you're chefs or whether you're food media people, like, rather than seeing your colleagues as competitors and seeing them as potential allies to support you, like, that can just, you can go so far if you have a team of people ready to, you know, hype you up and support you and post about your restaurant or post about your new project. And like, again, there's room, I think for everyone, like everyone is doing unique things. You need more than one restaurant in the world. You need, you need more than one opinion about food. You need, you need lots of writers and there is so much space for this. And I think I think people are starting to realize that, like at least in Copenhagen, it's a very supportive food community of people sharing food knowledge and tips and tricks. And yeah, I think that's just something that we can take even further. Yeah, your first question about chefs made me think that there's a lot of pressure on chefs on saving the world these days, like with uh, making sure that everything you do is uh, sustainable and uh, done in the right way and uh, it, we talked about it the other day when when there was um, this there's been this debate in uh, in the media here mainly in Norway actually but it's also a little bit to do with uh, with Denmark because some chefs have been criticized for selling out because they've accepted work mind you during this pandemic they've accepted work for you know big grocery chains or even worse like fast food chains and of course, their colleagues are calling them out. And, you know, our first gut reaction was maybe also to think, why the heck is the chef working with this brand? 
but then you take a step back and you're like, my God, they, they also have to make a living, you yeah. know? It's it's hard enough <laughs> to run a restaurant at the level that many of these chefs are doing. It's not a and they're supposed to make every right decision and be like the 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 spokesperson for uh, organic produce and sustainability in every single way. And then you do everything right there, but then you make an error with the, how you treat your your staff, which is also a super important uh, issue. But it just makes me think there's a lot of pressure on chefs to do everything right. I think like the the temperature like of the world right now is so high. Like we're at the boiling point and everyone like pandemic maybe has caused this or just there's so much stress in the air that everyone is just ready to attack anything. Um, and I think we could all benefit from being a bit more forgiving of yeah. each other. And nobody is perfect, but if we're all trying our best we can try to make this the most sustainable industry as possible and work towards like a greater goal together. I'm trying to make it popular for chefs to come up. Uh, Andres, I don't know if you know, but Lise Vaca started with five owners. So it was mm. two chefs, two bartenders and a musician were the five equal equity stake owners. And I'm not suggesting people do that, but I'm more talking through the Daniel Hume Will Gadara partnership that started, where it's like you put the front of house person, maitre d', you know, whatever you decide to call that person, in the same spotlight as the chef. Because what that does is that it gives that personal ownership to someone to take something off that plate of the chef because it's, I mean, like we could be guilty of this as food media people of putting the focus on the chef all the time. But it's like this sense of, oh, well, you want to hear about um, our philosophy? Talk to the chef. You want to hear about how the staff is treated? Talk to the chef. You want to hear about our sustainability? Whatever. Talk to the, I don't know. And so I'm a one. big, pro yeah, it's like I'm a big proponent of just like chefs. I've, I'm a big proponent of making it cool to take on other business partners, put them in the spotlight. Um, I mean, like, so when I, when I was doing pop-ups here in Seattle, I uh, met a woman who had a degree in um, sustainable food systems. And I created a role for her with the pop-ups that I was doing called Market Emissary. Basically, you go and speak with purveyors on you know, on my behalf, on behalf of the pop-up thing that we're doing. And you, you do it. Because I knew coming from like ordering for the restaurant how much work it is to like talk to purveyors and figure out where you're going to source stuff from and you know, like manage inventory and all of that sorts of stuff. So it's like... I tried to preempt that, give her, and she would be at the dinners talking to people about the ingredients. So I tried to like not make that all on me, you know? And so I'm trying to make it okay because it's something that it's, it has so much grounding and tradition and footing and reputation. And it's like, I, at least from what I notice, having conversations with chefs, it's like, oh, well, I worked for this chef who, who did do everything, you know, but then you what comes with that? You know, maybe they had a horrible family life or they were just, they got completely burnt out or they had substance abuse problems, you know? So it's like, you have all these negatives that come with feeling like you have to have everything on your shoulders. And so yeah. I'm in agreement yeah. with you guys. Yeah. Spread it out. Questions for me, topics, things that you wanted to cover here. I know that you guys sent a couple of questions through, but it's like, is there, you know, completely happy to like, when my wife and I come to Copenhagen, I would love to have a meal with you guys and, you know, continue chatting. And it's always great to see uh, you guys. But is there anything that we didn't cover that you were hoping to, to discuss? 
we covered uh, covered it well. Do you want to talk about milk some more? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> we so the reason why I watched this uh, video or all these videos about lighting uh, last week is because I've now finally ordered myself some proper lighting equipment. As you can see, we're missing that. We're now. <laughs> And it's getting darker here now, so I'm not, now maybe I should go and uh, pull the curtains here a little bit because we're we're almost in the dark now. Yeah. So we're working on getting better lighting. <laughs> now I don't think we have uh, anything else to add. We'd love to have a meal with you and your wife when you come here. Definitely. Amazing. And uh, hopefully we can, are you you're in Seattle, right? I'm in Seattle. Yep. Hopefully we can come there too. I have your family there. I right? have family in uh, they're in Allen, Washington, sure, like sure. the same. Yeah, so it's been a while, and I never really explored the food scene, so. Yeah, it's still a bit of a, I'm, I'm not going to say ghost town, because it's, it's, but there's a lot of restaurants who, they've gotten the okay from local governments to open at, you know, reduced capacity, and they're just saying no, you know, because it's just like, I've been burned one too many times of like, you can open, okay, now you have to shut down again, and so there's this incredible trepidation of people that don't want to bring staff back on, mm. and so... It's that, it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, that's been the situation in Norway as well. They've opened and closed and opened and closed so many times that now people are like, I'm not going to open. So in one way, it's been good, I think, that they just closed Copenhagen down for half a year. And places have jumped. Well, yeah, there's been takeaway, but it's pretty much been shut down. And now it's hopefully reopening without uh, too many limitations. We'll mm -hmm. see. Where can people find you guys online? Obviously, we want to put people in touch with the community that you guys are building. But, you know, if they have questions for you, where can they find you? Well, you always find us on Instagram. I'm uh, at Andrews Husa. I'm uh... Carnivore, O-R-R -R at the end, like my name. And then uh, our website is andrewshusa.com. And you can uh, find a link to The Hungries, which is our food club there. And then we have our YouTube channel, which is also just our names. So once you know our names, you will find us. Anders Tusa and Kate Moore. <laughs> What's up? Justin here again. Because, I mean, if you're still listening, you didn't not like this episode, right? And if that's the case, I'd like to think that you'd get value from the other work that I share here online. It's all focused on helping chefs and hospitality professionals perform better. If you don't have a lot of time, the best place to start is with the email newsletter that I write every single week called the 80-20 Edge. That's where I share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. And I say it saves time because I include all of the content that I published that week all in one place as kind of a weekly digest of sorts. Next up, you should check out my YouTube channel for gear reviews, clips from podcasts just like this one, and documented experiences from some of the best restaurants in the world. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about my intense cohort-based professional development focused course, get coaching from me to help you make your next move, or just support the show, you can check out justinconnor.com support. And if you do support this show already, that's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Finally, it really does help to share a review of this show on Apple Podcasts to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. And until the next episode, my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.